This is Rick Enlow, and I'm here with Dave Hillis, and we are in episode two of City as Playground. So this is a podcast that focuses on the work and thinking of the Leadership Foundation, and Dave's the president, and uh, we're going to kind of plunge into episode two, but kind of build a framework from episode one. So as uh, happens in a lot of television series, you know, they go previously on this show. So give us a little, uh, you know, kind of a, a backdrop uh, so that somebody who's diving in right now can kind of catch up. Great, Rick. I, I think the basic argument that we were trying to make in episode one is that leadership foundations um, have a particular charism. And again, that's one of those words that we sort of throw out and no one, everybody nods, but no one really knows what you mean. And by charism, what we mean is that you have a particular gift from God. Mm -hmm. And so for leadership foundations, what that is, is it's the, we see the city as God's playground rather than a battleground. And so that was what we together here last month tried to begin to talk about. And if you took that as your primary way of seeing the city, uh, what would be the kind of things that would begin to change as a result of it? And so we talked about the fact that God becomes a friend rather than a foe mm -hmm. um, to the city, that uh, someone like your neighbor becomes a colleague rather than a competitor, that the economy becomes one of abundance rather than scarcity. And so with that in mind, you know, I think we then further talked a bit about, well, what are some of the underpinnings of that, uh, including what's the theology that supports an idea like the city as playground, what would be an anthropology that would support an idea of city as playground, and then what would a sociology be that supports the, uh, the city as playground framework. And so I think that's pretty close to what we got. Yeah. Um, and well, there may be more, more uh, questions than answers, but that's where we headed. Well, and I think the—I I really like the, the idea. You, you're the one who gave me this idea. I don't know if we covered it last time or I'm just recalling it, but the concept of city as playground— is that uh, things have already been going on before I showed up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about that even like a playground. It's not like a playground becomes a playground, you know, when I show up, but, you know, that it, that's what it is. And then I join. And I think a lot of times I've heard in the past that somebody's going to go, you know, into a city and they're going to start doing God's work as yep. if God, you know, had been, you know, waiting for their arrival and, you know, had been uh, dormant and up, up to that point. And I think that's part of, what we were talking about. Yeah. In fact, let me uh, probably, we always want to make sure that we cite those who uh, shoulders and words that we either stand on or use. Um, for me, the, the idea of city as playground actually comes from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, mm -hmm. Chesterton had this wonderful line where he described uh, heaven. He said, heaven is a playground. And so I consequently took from that um, this idea of, well, if heaven is a playground, and the way that the book of Revelation describes heaven in its final chapter as a city, then wouldn't it logically seem that city is a playground? And the whole idea about Chesterton in making that argument is that uh, you're exactly right, that the Holy Spirit has gone out before us. Uh, God precedes anything that we think about, we decide to act around. And so um, that's a real game changer because now all of a sudden we walk into places like cities and as opposed to bringing with us a program that's prescribed, that's going to help people, what we actually do is we walk into cities and say, uh, what has God up to here? And then how do I take my individual work or my organization's work and begin to align that 
with what is already previously working in that city. Yeah, I really like that language. I've, I've read it in some local leadership foundations mm-hmm. um, literature or, you know, their online stuff where it says they're, they're there to discover and then, you know, build capacity and deploy, you know, that exactly. kind of thing, not yeah. to initiate, but to, exactly. to find out what God's up to. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just a, again, just a very practical example. And again, we'll talk about this, obviously, over the next number of episodes as we look at different individual cities. But a general truth about cities, um, probably anywhere in the world, is that you discovered that there are countless numbers of individuals and organizations already on the ground doing work. Right. And so, you know, just you take that as a simple statement and then you recognize how often people show up to a city thinking that they're the first ones there and discounting everyone that has been there previously for, you know, however many years. Uh, Here in Tacoma, for example, if you go to the United Way and you look at all of the organizations that they support, um, it's upwards of, you know, 750 to 800 organizations. And that doesn't even include the faith community, which has another 750, you know, churches, temples, synagogues. So when you look at Pierce County in Tacoma, you say this doesn't lack activity. Right. Um, the real issue is how do we get all of this activity working together in a way that um, doesn't uh, you know, cancel each other out, doesn't duplicate, et mm-hmm. cetera. And so I think a leadership foundation comes in and says, it's a given for us that there's all of this good stuff going on out there. And yeah, now how do we help develop its capacity, build um, out uh, I- its ability to do what it wants to do? That's that's. Excellent. And I want to, once again, just focus this podcast mm-hmm. today on, on that idea that um, we, we could kind of imagine um, a platform, uh, a stage on which uh, this idea of a city as a playground is built. And as you mentioned, there would be a part of that platform would be a, what we think about God, what, what God thinks about us, that theology. Exactly. Then there would be, uh, we'd have to have an understanding of how... Um, we work as social animals, like as, you know, as a groups of people, how we're socialized, that sociology. Mm-hmm. But today we wanted to just kind of drill down on the anthropology idea, the, the idea of anthro being man, men and women, like how, uh, you know, how important is having an understanding or even spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, what explains human behavior or, or what kind of human behavior we would anticipate to right. make the city as a playground. Right. So Absolutely. let's let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, I, I made the comment um, at our last podcast. There's a, a woman, French philosopher, um, Simone Weil. Um, you want to say whale because it's spelled W-E-I-L, right, right. but it's, it's Weil. Um, but she is a marvelous thinker. And one of the things that she essentially argued is that the scripture um, is more a book um, of anthropology than theology. Um, that it's it's actually looking at humankind and seeing what is it that motivates humankind to be humankind and mm-hmm. why do they make the decisions that they do and not and what is it about these heroic moments and then just these dismal failures. I mean, you, you know, just as a snapshot, take someone like um, King David who appears within his life to go from literally being told that he has God's very own heart to then at some point deciding that he would sleep with his commander's wife um, and then got her pregnant, 
discovered that that wouldn't probably be good for the family business and so then had him killed and right. so i mean that's a fairly perplexing uh, anthropological question how could david and who is this david that would go from you know having god's own heart to then turning around and being part of that kind of heinousness mm -hmm. so the question around anthropology is simply um, for you and for me, and then ultimately for leadership foundations, when someone asks you, so how is it that Rick Enlow or Dave Hillis um, decides to do what they do? Um, is there a way to think about that, describe that, and have some understanding so that then we'll be able to help motivate people, um, you know, shape them, you know, get them moving collectively in the right way. Um, and if you didn't know how people are, well, then you're going to have a very hard time on a very practical level of just simply getting things done in a city. So that's, that's the kind of larger framework, Rick, for why I think an anthropology, you know, anthropology is important. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you and I are going to talk about a particular um, sort of, you know, take on anthropology. But I think for the listener, uh, for people who are eager to you know, do something in this world and make a difference. Um, it it does demand, I think, all of us to say, how would I answer the question of how does so and so get motivated to do what so and so is doing, right, um, and right. what are what are the um, variables that contribute to that? Well, one of the things I think <coughs> is a great takeaway from our chance to converse and then and then broadcast it is uh, the mention of some of the people that that you bring up because I had really never heard of Simone Bay and then. Because you mentioned her, I, I began to read about her and mm -hmm. some of the things that she uh, that she was about. Uh, died at age thirty four, um, which just had a huge compassion for people that that didn't uh, weren't well resourced, and so she 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 understood that. Um, then what, what I really liked about the the brief sketch that I you know that I read about her is that um, she took a a real serious stand on very important um, kinds of positions in her time and then on, on some of them she she said you know what upon further consideration uh, I'm gonna change that I think this now and mm -hmm. it, it was really fun to see how she yeah. was so curious but she was flexible because she wanted she seemed like she wanted to know and so uh, I appreciate that so when we talk about some of these different uh, individuals like mm -hmm. you're gonna bring up different guys names I think part of the takeaway of our podcasting time is to kind of jot those down and say hey just kind of you know, do a little research on who those people were because that's going to really um, reinforce and, and, you know, just expand, you know, the, what we're doing. Now, what about this statement? Just agree, disagree, or, you yeah. know, expand. Some, somebody would say, well, I don't have an anthropology. And, and, and then, you know, maybe sarcastically I would say, well, no, I think you do. You just have a bad or a poor one. You know what I mean? Because, <laughs> right. you know, and same thing with theology. I don't have a theology. Well, yeah, you do. It's just, it may not be that uh, robust, right? Right. And uh, so I'm not saying it's bad or poor, but, you know, it's right. just, it just hasn't been, you know, examined. What do you say uh, uh, about that? Yeah, I, so an opening statement I would make about whether it's theology or anthropology or sociology or anything for that matter is, is the old, I think it was Aristotle who said, you know, the unexamined life is a life not worth living. And I think what, what is presupposed in that is not even so much is there a right position or a wrong position. Um, 
I mean, you know, we're changing all the time, and mm -hmm. I, I shudder to think what I was talking about 10 years ago, and I was so convinced about, and now I look at it in the same way that you just described Simone Bay and said, ah, I, no, I'm, no, I, that, that's not true. And I, in fact, I would argue against myself. Yeah. But the key is, are we reflecting? Um, are we examining um, those assumptions, those sometimes almost what we think are God-given certainties that might not always be as God-given or as certain as we first thought. And I think that one of the things that the Christian perspective does is that it should free us to begin to think, to ask questions. I, right. I love E.E. E. Cummings uh, said this, this beautiful little uh, line of poetry, and I, I use it all the time. He said, the beautiful answer is always preceded by a more beautiful question. And, and so what that means, I think, is what, what are the questions, right, that are, are really shaping? I mean, I, you know, I, I say this oftentimes to theology classes. We would all conclude that Jesus is a beautiful answer. Um, we preach it, we teach it, we evangelize it. But it is interesting. I think it's preceded by a more beautiful question. And the more beautiful question is the triune God sitting there trying to figure out what is the best way to love Rick Enlow? Um, what is the best way to love Dave Hillis? What is the best? Well, that question kind of takes your breath away. Mm -hmm. um, and again, to transfer it into, you know, even our own relationships. I mean, you know, uh, you know, you love Marv, your wife, uh, but, but even deeper is you sitting going, how can I love um, Marv, mm -hmm. and it's that question that begins to shape. So, um, so I think for me, what I oftentimes do when someone says I don't have a theology or I don't have a, mm -hmm. uh, no, y you do, um, but you haven't examined it, and and that's what we need to do is to begin to surface um, what 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 are those things that we you know maybe have hid or we haven't taken time to think about because the truth is it really does shape in a very practical way uh, those actionable parts of our life uh, why we take this job or why we live in this side of the city or why we decide to raise our kids that way I mean, all of those things stem from these uh, I think unexamined theological or anthrop anthropological positions well and, uh, the picture I get is <coughs> um, many of us have had our eyes examined at it like you know a real mm -hmm legit kind of you know ophthalmologist and you know that big that machine that looks almost medieval that right, they, they right. kind of bring it up to your head and, and then they start asking you like which is better one or two you know a or b they and they keep right. snapping these different lenses and of course you're trying to focus on some kind of a chart that you're trying to trying to read and sooner or later they come along with with a lens and you go like hey now that one now that one helps me see mm-hmm clearly mm -hmm. what I'm looking at That's and great. to me I think that if we thought of like these three different sort of uh, experiences three different machines you know we have a theology uh, you know a kind of ophthalmologist you mm -hmm. know that that puts lenses in front of us and uh, the same thing so today if we were sitting in that uh, anthropology chair mm -hmm. and they slid that big machine up there and they threw uh, the thinking and the the writing and the teaching of uh, a guy named Rene Girard, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they put his lenses up. Um, we've, 
you know, chatted and, and uh, over time have considered the fact that, that that's been a very helpful lens in seeing clearly why the city is a playground and, and understanding, you know, how to explain human behavior overall. Yeah. And so, but that could be a, a name that people need to jot down right now, Rene Girard. Tell us about him, uh, maybe how you even cross paths with yeah. uh, his thinking, and then what, what that contributes to, to uh, the anthropology. Yeah, um, I will do so, Rick. I want to um, preface everything that I, um, I should probably preface everything I say in general this way, but particularly when it relates to Rene Girard, um, I've, I've told people that uh, in reading him, I oftentimes come away going, um, there is something that smells awfully right about what I just read. And then I want to preface it immediately and say, but I'm not quite sure what I just read. <laughs> and uh, he's, a, he's a French intellectual. He actually is still alive, 91 years old. Um, he uh, taught for many years, most of his years at Stanford. Um, he uh, <clears throat> came and um, initially uh, started his, his career as a cultural historian, um, comparative literature, anthropology. But really in the tradition, I think, of, <clears throat> of French intellectualism, he could sort of put his hand to anything um, and, and had an opinion about it that was well-reasoned and, and thoughtful. Um, and so René Girard um, came up with a, a theory of anthropology, um, which he calls mimetic theory. And the, the basic argument <clears throat> is that um, we, you and I, um, do what we do because we imitate a model. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the reasons that this, and we'll, we'll talk more about this, but I want to make this point quickly. One of the reasons that this appeals to me about the city as playground is that if you stand on the edge of a, a playground in a city park uh, and you just become the casual observer um, and you watch little kids play and parents pushing swings, um, one of the things that you'll recognize immediately is that the economy of the place is one of imitation. Um, it's, I want to go down the slide like Jimmy just did, or I want to, you know, swing as high on the, you know, swing as Mary just did. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, everybody is looking over their shoulder um, at each other as a result of, of a, uh, a model, a, a person that they're, they're imitating. And so for Gerard, um, that, that is essentially it. The, the technical way he will say it um, is that you and I are constituted. And, and by constituted, he means literally put together um, by our desire of another person's desire. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I just want to slow that statement down because there's a sense in which um, it's so simple. Um, I desire according to another's desire. Um, I'm, I'm made up. I, I Dave Hillis, um, am, am this person who's got, you know, um, these models that I've, I've imitated because I desired what they desired and, you know, thus I am. Um, but it has huge, huge ramifications, huge, you know, huge implications. And so... Um, that's that's his his basic argument. Um, well, and I think it runs very counter to the, I guess, the myth uh, of of our culture, which is that uh, 
these things are original with me. Like I'm the one coming up with what I want. Mm-hmm. And then when you really hear this, in fact, uh, there's a, I guess we would call him a, um, a follower of Gerard who was in town last week. Yeah. You and I had a chance to have dinner with them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and he is James Allison and, and James is a, a writer, a speaker, um, theologian, anthropologist and everything. And one of the things that, that, um, he said, which just totally reflects what you were saying, you, you I remember you asked him, um, now, how did you even run on to Gerard and like, you know, why did you decide to become, you know, interested in what he was saying? Mm-hmm. And he said, it's like, uh, you pay attention when you hear somebody tell the truth. Yeah, that's a great statement. Wasn't that? Yes. And it was just like that, that idea that he could, when he could see clearly, yep. you know, when he, when he realized this thinking. And yet, uh, I've, I've heard it, uh, obviously marketing has figured this out because, I mean, I think about, you know, the shirt I have on or, or the watch I have. Yep. And, and, I, and this wasn't original with me. Yeah, in fact, I mean, that's, I was going to just, uh, before we went further, is, is and, and go down this philosophical, anthropological um, road that can get, you know, at times a little bit dense. Um, but to back up and say, yeah, Madison Avenue um, understands this, you know, through and through. And, and the basic way they understand it is they'll take, you know, this watch that I have on my wrist and they recognize intuitively um, that this watch by itself won't sell itself. Uh, there, there's nothing in Dave Hillis that says, a watch, I need it. Right. Um, but you put this watch onto the wrist of, you know. The most interesting man in the world. <laughs> That's right. Or something like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and all of a sudden you find yourself going, wow, I actually need that watch. And, and so, yeah, Madison Avenue understands that, and they sell, you know, by the goo gobs um, because of uh, Gerard's understanding of mimetic desire. Yeah, and, you know, and, and it takes, a, at least in my uh, view, it takes a, some pretty stark honesty to admit some of these things because I started thinking about, uh, even though I've been able to uh, have the same, you know, wife for 38 years, but I, you know, I would say, well, I desired to be with Marva Lee. You know, I mm-hmm. desired to, you know, like mm-hmm. build a life together with her. Mm-hmm. But if I really think, really think it through, it wasn't just that um, I desired her and she desired me. It was there was this very strong um, impulse that I knew some other guys that desired her. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, it was, you know, really, if you leave that out of the equation, it doesn't exactly explain my behavior. Yeah. Well, so. So to go to James Allison, and you asked me the question about how did I come to Gerard, uh, it was actually through James. Uh, James uh, has written, I think, now seven or eight books. Um, but I happened upon this particular book called On Being Liked. Uh, the book is very simple. Um, it's probably James's easiest book, I think, to access for uh, our listeners. Um, <clears throat> he, like Gerard, can be a little bit... Um, how obtuse would not be quite the word because that wouldn't be positive. But like you um, said, you have to slow down. You have to read slowly. You have to read slowly. Um, but in this book, uh, there's a particular chapter called uh, "Confessions of a Former Marginaholic," and one that the title of the mm-hmm. of the chapter just grabbed me. Um, but in reading it, um, I was introduced uh, to to Gerard, 
And so it was really through the portal um, of James Allison that, that uh, Gerard has showed up, Rick, for me. His, his most accessible book is a book called On Being Liked. Um, just as a, as a little parenthetical about why the title of that, of that book, uh, James does this wonderful thing where he says, um, for God to love us um, is no big deal. That's, you know, if, if God has a job description, it would probably be like, you know, love Rick Enlow, love mm. Dave Hillis. Right. But he says there's nothing in um, God's job description that God should like us. And it's, it's being liked um, where you now begin to go, wow, I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to do something different. And so it's that title that, of course, captures the, the Girardian notion of, um, you know, what it means to be shaped by someone else's desire. Well, in the, in the book, he raises this idea of that it was Freud um, who was really the first sort of cultural anthropologist to put his finger on what everybody knew to be true to be a major shaper of who we are, why we do what we do, and that was desire. Yeah. And so, in a sense, God bless Freud, he named the fact, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room that nobody wanted to talk about, but in truth, everybody made decisions from that, and that was, I just simply desired to do it. But of course, for Freud, it was, you know, foundationally um, a sexual desire. Right. And it was also a desire that Freud never explained. Um, in other words, it was just given. You know, Rick, you've got this sexual desire and, you know, you have this relationship with your father or your mother or your sister or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, James then goes on to say um, it was Heidegger that comes in and says um, Freud had it right. That it is desire. And, and let's be honest about that. But it was Heidegger that said, but it's not just, um, you know, Rick has a desire for that object. It's that Rick actually also has a desire for that object to desire him back. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a relationship. But it was Gerard that comes in and looks at Freud and looks at Heidegger and says, yep, you both have it right. It's, it's about desire. But it's even a bit more complicated. It's triangular. It's, you know, I desire according to what you desire, Rick. Mm -hmm. And so there is a subject, there's a model, and then there's an object. And again, you can get lost in all of this, but here's the way that James says it. He says, you know, Tarzan, you know, Jane movies. And uh, he said, so Freud would say, Tarzan looks at Jane and says, me, Tarzan, want Jane. Mm -hmm. He says that explains Freud's, you know, anthropology. And the original Tarzan movie. And the original Tarzan <laughs> movie, that's right, and most things. He says um, Heidegger's explanation would be, uh, no, it's not so much Tarzan, me Tarzan want Jane, it's me Tarzan want Jane to want me. So I'm not actually interested in you unless you show some interest in me. Um, but he says it's, it's, it's actually... Um, you know, this last scenario that really, you know, sort of paints it out in which Gerard nails. He says, actually at the film shoot, there's, you know, Tarzan on one side of the island and Jane's on the other side of the island. And they really don't have any interest in each other until the Hollywood director shows up and shows interest in Jane. And now all of a sudden, Tarzan sees the Hollywood director's interest in Jane 
and discovers that his own desire for Jane has been awakened. And, and that, I think, really is, is, a, is a profound insight. Mm -hmm. And what it means when you get then into working in the city, um, and we can, again, pull out some of these ramifications, it means then that when Rick Enlow goes into the city, um, he goes in as a model um, and a potential model of desire for other people, um, thereby um, being able to help change what it is that they would desire or not desire. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the theological explanation for this um, that I think is, is quite good is, is that it's the incarnation. I mean, God could have loved us in countless numbers of ways, and that's really what the Old Testament speaks to. But um, in the end, and the, and the ultimate you know, demonstration of that is that God becomes human. And um, the idea behind God becoming human is that God literally set God's self up as a model so that now our desire, our pattern of desire, um, can be reconstituted, um, you know, redrawn in such a way that we move towards, um, again, people as colleagues rather than competitors, mm -hmm. as, you know, being able to see, um, you know, our city as a playground rather than a battleground. So that's at least a little bit of, of kind of the anthropological, you know, angle to all of this. Um, and, I, and I would just add, you know, Rick, just because our listeners will go, yikes, you know, that was a... That was an interesting <laughs> podcast, and French intellectuals, and desire, and Freud, and you know we've thrown out all kinds of things. But but the thing I would just again want to simplify, and even ask our listeners: when you ask yourself the question, "Well, how is it that I do what I do?" Um, do you find yourself going, you know, in truth? A lot of the things that I do is because of what I saw modeled for me down the street. Mm -hmm. or in my family, or at the college I went to, or at the church I currently go to. Um, but that choice of a car, that wardrobe that I have, um, you know, the books that I read, uh, as much as I would have wanted to believe it was this independent person, you know, that made these choices, um, in fact, most of what I do uh, is a result of, you know, mimicking, mm -hmm. modeling, you know, imitating other people's desires. And the important thing is that's not a bad thing. Right. Um, that's, that, that can be a really good thing. Um, you know, Cervantes said it perfectly. I mean, tell me who you hang out with and I will tell you who you are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he implicitly understood that it's all about modeling. And so now the great question becomes, um, who are you going to model? Um, who, who are you going to allow uh, to be, you know, the models that will shape uh, what you like, uh, right. what you don't like, and how you're going to live your life? You know, I heard a guy recently was talking about bottled water. And, uh, of course, it's just water. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, we, I actually called the 800 number on a bottle of water because it has, if you have any questions. So I had a question. So I called him. I said, where is this water sourced? And it was 30 minutes from the city. It was municipal water from the city of Bremerton. That's what the water <laughs> it was. It was Dasani, a Coca-Cola bottled water. And uh, literally, I had paid two bucks for tap water, you know, from Bremerton. Yeah. So, but when I was talking to this guy who was selling water, I said, now, this seems like a tough thing to sell. I mean, you know, this is available for free at my house. Right, right. And he said, well, we don't sell water. We sell, um, we, we don't manufacture water is the way he said it. We manufacture a demand. 
Mm. That's that's you know, a and, great and I think yep. in this area, it's that's kind of a I thought about this parallel that we're not in the city, you know, to manufacture ministries or you know or solutions, but we're here to manufacture desire. And when people, you know, this is this becomes this demand that that's draws them. And I know that uh, one of the fascinating things that we can get into even next time mm-hmm. is obviously when we desire the desire of another. That's really an important thing for us to examine. Which other? Yeah. And isn't it isn't it Gerard who or is it Allison that that comes up with the, the phrase the other other? Yeah. Which I love that. Yeah. Explain that just a sec. Yeah, I mean, so to, to back up, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I just want to say what you just described, you know, manufacturing desire, um, I think is absolutely um, key and, and is a part of the currency of seeing a city as a playground. Um, you know, when parents all show up with their kids, I mean, that's precisely what they're doing, um, right? They're using the instruments there to, you know, manufacture a time outdoors where people can connect with one another, et cetera. So, um, so with that being said, yeah, as you drill down, now you have a choice to make. Um, whose desire will you imitate? And the Allison argument um, and the Girard argument is that ultimately, um, you know, the truest bet, the surest bet, of course, is to imitate the desire of God. Um, and Allison calls God um, the other other. Mm-hmm. And the reason he uses that is that, um, one, he, I think he thinks it's more deeply biblical, um, the notion that you know, when God first showed up that people were literally not even allowed to use God's name because it would have been a kind of idol worship. Mm-hmm. But also on a very practical level, uh, what James is trying to do is to say, this God who we uh, are in relationship with, who we worship, um, has no, absolutely no contact with this world's system. Um, This God isn't just a God within the system that happens to be powerful and benign and holy. No, this God is is literally outside the system Mm -hmm. and thereby um, is not controlled by the system. And, and you can then, of course, you know, as a result, be free of the system yourself. And there's really touches here, because um, we'll be talking about things like this, but really touches of the matrix, right? This mm-hmm. notion uh, of, you know, Keanu Reeves and, and that movie. And, and, you know, again, it goes in different ways, but it, it touches, I think, on a good sense of this, of this system, you know, that's at play that we're surrounded by. Um, that we are, you know, making decisions in and, and being, you know, shaped and formed by without even knowing that it's really there. And you don't get free until you get, in a sense, outside, you know, the matrix or right. in this case, outside the system. And so that's the reason James describes God as the other other is that this God has no part of this system that we t- so take for granted. Yeah. Altogether, another is another, mm-hmm. you know, the other other. I love that. And I think that uh, just to conclude, the you can imagine uh, if, in fact, we decide, well, this is a very insightful way to think about uh, and explain human behavior. If, if we're in a city and we desire the city to be a playground where, where uh, kids can grow up and where old people can, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sit on a park bench and enjoy the afternoon, if that's our desire, mm-hmm. what an incredibly... Uh, profound um, you know just just uh, 
moment in that city's life because it begins to perpetuate, you know, what others would want. Absolutely. And so, I mean, it just, it does give us this, uh, well, the, the word that comes to my mind is leader mm-hmm. <laughs> and the leadership foundation. That's what, that's, that's, uh, that's what it's about. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, there's so much to, to unpack there. And, and I think, again, you, you did a good job of putting your finger on it that, that organizations, uh, and I hope Leadership Foundations is one of those, that really is impacting the city. Um, they do programs, but that's not actually what they believe is going to change things. And they certainly raise money, and you know, Lord knows we all need money. But again, money is just you know a, a function of what you need. Ultimately, um, what they're about um, is you know healing a city through relationships, through um, a belief that that as you and I get to know one another and we you know allow each other in, that begins to have a ripple effect. And one of the the ripples that takes place is that you are changing patterns of desire. Mm-hmm. Um, I all of a sudden find myself as a result of hanging out with, you know, Rick Enlow um, to be more desirous to live a noble life. Um, and, and this, again, and people at times might go, well, that sounds a little bit mystical or, you know, it's like, no, in fact, it happens all the time, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and the Kiwanis Club and the Rotary Club and, you know, I mean, we, we take these as givens. Um, but what sits beneath them is this, is this simple little belief. Wow, if I just hang out with her, um, I think I'll probably be a better person as a result of it. And, mm-hmm. and we know this to be true. And so that's what Gerard did. He, he reached into that common human anthropology um, and, and sort of pulled it out and made explicit what I think, um, you know, we all um, know to be true uh, implicitly, but just haven't had the language to say it. And, and that's why I'm most thankful for, for Rene Girard. He's given, I think, myself and leadership foundations um, really a grammar um, by which to begin to, you know, talk about how do you impact a city, uh, you know, as a, as a city, as a playground. And it's things like desire. It's things like a model, you know, it's things like the incarnation that, that really are formative. Yeah, and you know, the that's why when we get back to the optometrist kind of picture, we'll sometimes say, if we look through the Girardian lens, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we're saying is that, you know, we can see clearly, uh, you know, and, and help to understand how to explain what, what, what makes us tick. And I think uh, James Allison, the book that I was reading that I didn't understand at all, but I love the title, <laughs> was James's a doctoral dissertation about Girardian work, and it was The Joy of Being Wrong. Yeah, right. And so I think that it's important for us to realize that maybe even as we listen to this podcast and we're, you know, we're kind of writing down some names of some people, we're going to start kind of investigating. There is a joy in, um, in realizing, hey, I don't, I don't think I had this figured out, and that, because it's liberating and it's motivating. And uh, so that's, what, that's why we're talking. Absolutely. And I, I think this notion that, that you've created through this podcast, Rick, of, of this being a, a conversation, uh, a, a table where we hope that other voices will join us and um, that we'll all begin to contribute to one another um, and say, oh, well, have you thought about this or have you heard about this writer? And, you know, there's this poet that just, uh, you know, said this. And, and as those voices collect, um, I think we begin to see better. 
and mm-hmm. you know when we see better um, going back to one of our premises uh, in the first podcast how or was uh, we act better uh, and, and that is very simply it um, you know I want to see better so I can act better and make the kind of positive change in this world and that's what leadership foundations do and so if you want to interact with us you can email us uh, go to leadership foundations.org dot org and uh, at the same time um, if you have uh, something to contribute some uh, you know additional authors some additional thoughts we'll even get you on the podcast in the future and, and talk to you because we can uh, Skype it in and and, uh, and make it into a uh, you know a, a conversation that includes anybody who has something to share so thanks again for uh, checking in till next time thank you Rick